Have you ever noticed how sometimes God uses the least likely people, maybe even the least qualified people to accomplish his will? When God needed a judge to lead Israel against the Midianites, he searched out Gideon, who was hiding in a wine press. And when the angel came to him, he said, the Lord comes to you, mighty warrior. And Gideon is like, who are you talking about? We think about Saul before he becomes king. And they're kind of doing a little raffle. They're kind of deciding who's going to be king. And it comes down and it's Saul. And where is he? He's hiding out in the luggage. He wanted no part of that. David is too young, too inexperienced, too impertinent to defeat the giant. And yet God chose him. Amos was just a shepherd when God called him to prophesy Nehemiah is living a comfortable life as a trusted servant to the king of Babylon. When he feels the call to go back to Jerusalem and help be rebuild the walls. Esther is living basically a secret life. Until she is called kind of by her uncle and says you are here for a purpose. We come to the New Testament and we think about the fact that God chose a virgin young girl and a carpenter to be the earthly parents of the Messiah. I don't know how they were qualified. I don't think any of us who are parents thought when we first became parents we were qualified. And the fact that, you know, they were such a humble, humble, lowly kind of setting. But that's whom God chose. The disciples that Jesus picked to be his apostles. Four of them were just ordinary blue collar fishermen. One of them was a Roman sympathizer and a tax collector. The other was a rebel against Rome. And yet God chose them. Jesus chose them to be the apostles. Saul was the strongest persecutor of the church. And God called him to do great things. I've told you this before in my studying in Paul's writings. I think that's the thing that blew Paul's mind more than anything. I don't think it blew Paul's mind that God would save him. I think he kind of had come to terms with that. But that God would still use him as a tool to carry out his will. That was almost more than Paul could grasp. Timothy was from a mixed marriage. And yet God used all of them to carry out his will. Last week we started our look at Moses' journey with God. And we looked at his birth and how that he was saved by his parents putting him in the basket in the in the Nile River and he was found by Pharaoh's daughter and then he was kind of raised up until the time of weaning by his mother and then he was raised in the household of Pharaoh and then he finds uh, you know uh, an Egyptian uh, being mistreating one of the Hebrews and he kills the Egyptian and then that is found out and so he is a fugitive and he has to escape and he goes to Midian where he meets a young woman. 
And he, she, he marries her and goes to work for her father as a shepherd. And that brings us to where we are tonight, where we get a call from God. Now, I told you last week that Moses' life is real easy to break up. You can break it up into three 40-year periods. Now, what you have to understand is the first two 40-year periods happen very quickly. If you have your Bibles and you're in Exodus, and you're in Exodus chapter 2, it says that Pharaoh's daughter named him, this is chapter 2 verse 10, Pharaoh's daughter named him Moses, saying, I dream out of the water. And then chapter verse 11 says, one day after Moses had grown up, there's 40 years. Okay, from the time he becomes Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh's daughter's son to the time he grows up here and, and eventually kills the Egyptian. That's 40 years. That's the first 40 years. Whew, that went by quick, didn't it? And so then he goes to Midian. And then in uh, chapter uh, 2 and verse 25, it says, So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. In chapter 3 and verse 1, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro. Between the last verse of chapter 2 and the first verse of chapter 3 is another 40 years. Wow, that went quick. So the first 40 years went quick. Second 40 years went quick. The last 40 years ain't going to go so quick. Okay, we'll be spending a lot of time and you know what happens with Moses after that. So Moses gets a call from God. Like Gideon, like Amos, like Saul, Moses gets a call from God. And so beginning in chapter 3 and verse 1 it says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now this is the mountain that will eventually be known as Mount Sinai. But at this point it's known as Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought... I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up. Would you not have done the same thing? I imagine so. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Now this is where Moses and I probably part company. Because if I'm going to a really weird site, this bush is burning, but it's not burning up. And all of a sudden the bush speaks to me. I'm out of there. Okay. I'm running for the hills. It reminds me, I I love that story. Remember in the Old Testament of Balaam and his donkey. And how that, you know, the donkey sees these angels with these swords and he's trying to save Balaam's life. But Balaam doesn't realize it. So he keeps kicking the donkey and finally the donkey speaks to him. Well, that's not the odd part. The odd part is that Balaam spoke back. And this is the odd part here. Moses speaks back. Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And this, at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. 
I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of Israel has reached me and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh To bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. You know, if God had stopped at verse 9, Moses would have been thrilled. God has heard the, the Israelites, he's heard their crying, and God has decided, I am going down and I am going to rescue them. And if God had not, you know, if he had not gone on to verse 10 or maybe he'd taken a breath, Moses would have probably said, good for you, God. It's about time. I know you can do it. I'm behind you 100%. But then God says, now go. You go and let my people out of Egypt and bring them to the land that I was talking about. Now you and I can think of many reasons why Moses is not the man for this job. I'll give you a few that I came up with. He was raised in luxury. He was raised as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. You do not think that that would have been a little resentful for the other Hebrews when he comes back? Knowing that, oh yeah, sure, you, you lived as a prince for 40 years. He might have, they might have thought he had divided loyalties. Is he Egyptian? Is he Hebrew? Well, I, I kind of think he already covered that back with the, the thing that happened with the Egyptian. Moses had a temper. We're going to find more of that as we deal with his life. But we see that right at the very beginning where he sees the Egyptian mistreating the Hebrew. And instead of dealing it in a non-physical way, certainly in a non-lethal way, he kills the Hebrew. So not only does he have a, kills the Egyptian. Thank you for the inquisitive looks. It helps. Uh, So not only does he have a temper, but he's a, he's a murderer. He's a fugitive from Egyptian justice. He's on the Egyptian BI or whatever, ten, top 10 most wanted list. And so he certainly would not tend to be the one that would go back. 40 years he's been away. He's married now to a non-Hebrew. And that certainly would have caused some problems. But God had a plan. And that plan included Moses. Let me ask you something. It's a rhetorical question. Could God have released the Israelites with no help from Abraham? Not Abraham. Moses. Could he have done it without Moses? Absolutely. Could he have done it without any human help at all? Certainly he could have. But have you noticed that God generally does not work that way? 
A little later on when the children of Israel do finally get to the promised land and there's Jericho. Could God have just snapped his fingers or called out and the walls just come tumbling down? Sure. But he told the Israelites, you march around that city one time for six days, seven times on the seventh day. Could he have built for Noah an ark? Don't That was 120 years or something it took Noah to build the ark? Wow. Could God not have just, you know, there's an ark? Sure he could have. Or could he have saved Noah another way without having to build the ark? Sure. Could God have proclaimed the gospel for the first time? By having the angel skywrite the gospel in the heavens. But he had Peter get up on the day of Pentecost and preach that sermon. Did you notice what it said? God said, I am going down and I am going to release and free the Israelites. I'm going to do it, but Moses... I'm going to do it through you. You are the one I am calling. God has a plan. Unlike Isaiah, who when he was called said, Lord, here am I, send me. Moses, on the other hand, said, Lord, here am I. I ain't going. I don't want to go. And so he begins to make excuses. God has a plan, I believe, for all of us. God wants to use each and every one of us. We may not think we're the bright person. We may not think we're the best fit. We may not think we have the right education or the right training or whatever the case may be. But God knows best. And God wants to use us. But we cannot be like Moses and begin to make excuses. First of all, Moses said, I'm a nobody. In verse 11 and verse 12, after God says, you, I'm sending you, Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Legitimate? Okay. It's not, it's, it's, it's not going to be legitimate, but right off the top, that's pretty legitimate, I think. Who, who am I? I'm a shepherd out here in the, you want somebody who's a born leader. You want somebody who's had practice. You want somebody who's been to, you know, uh, leader school, you know, uh, somebody who, who knows this kind of stuff. Not me. And Moses was right in and of himself. Moses was a nobody. Moses had absolutely no reason to think that he could do this. But God was ready for him. Verse 12. And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you and the people will worship on this mountain. God says, you're right, Moses. You are a nobody. But I am going to be with you. Gideon says, 
Me, a mighty warrior? God says, I am going to be with you. Paul's like, you want me to preach to the Gentiles? God says, I am going to be with you. When we have God behind us, it's not about us. It's about him. It's not about what we can or cannot do or have been trained to do. It's about what God has promised to do through us. It wasn't important what Moses thought of Moses or what others thought of Moses, but only what God thought of Moses. You see, Moses was thinking about what other people were going to think. Moses was thinking about, it's the exact opposite of David and Goliath. You remember that? David goes and he's getting ready and he sees what's going on and everything. And so he marches up to his brothers and he marches up to the king and he said, I'll go get the giant. And the king and his brothers and everybody else, well, who do you think you are? You're a nobody. And I'm paraphrasing, but I think I can get into David's head enough to know that David would say, you're right. I am a nobody, but God is on my side. And because God is on my side, I'm going to overcome the fact that I'm too young. I'm going to overcome the fact that I'm inexperienced. I'm going to overcome the fact that, you know, I'm too small. And I'm going to take that giant down. Because God is with me. God often uses the obscure, seemingly insignificant people to accomplish his task. Secondly, Moses uses the excuse about how do I know... What, the, what if they ask your name? What if I go and say, okay, God, our God has called me. Can you, can you imagine what Moses is thinking? I can. You want me to go to these people. And you want me to tell them that I was out on the mountain and this bush was burning, but it wasn't burning up. And God spoke to me through that bush and told me to come. And deliver you out of Egypt. And carry you to the promised land. Moses says we got a little problem here. What if they ask me what your name is? And so in verse 13. Moses said to God. Suppose I go to the Israelites. And say to them the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me what is his name. Then what shall I tell them? God says to Moses. I am who I am. This is what you are to say to Israel. To the Israelites, I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me. This is my name forever. The name by which I will be remembered from generation to generation. Go assemble the elders of Israel. Say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me and said, I have watched over you. I have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised that I will bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of all those people flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met me and we want to go on a three day journey. And, and he goes on. So God says, you tell them that I am has sent you. This is the dynamic name of God. It is, it is the, the verb essence to be. Not I was, not I will be, but I am. 
have been forever in the past and forever in the future. And you remember that when Jesus is on earth, God in the flesh, especially in the book of John, how many times Jesus used that phrase, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth and the life. I am the door. I am the gate. And then just to kind of solidify it. When his opponents were asking him and he was talking about how that he remembered, you know, knew something about Abraham. And they're like, how can you know Abraham? Abraham's 4,000 years ago or whatever the case may be. And, you know, you're just a, you're just a lad. And Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Not before Abraham was, I was. Before Abraham was, I am. And I imagine there was a collective gasp from the crowd. Because every one of those Pharisees and teachers of the law went back to this very passage. And knew that with that statement of Jesus, he was claiming to be God himself. Using the very name of God. I am. And God told Moses, they will listen. But Moses still isn't pretty sure. So he says, hey, they're not going to believe me. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say the Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said, What is in your hand? He said, A staff. Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground. And it became a snake and he ran from it. There's the Moses. Ah, I like that. Ah, me and Moses in line there. Then the Lord said, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. This is where Moses and I part again. So Moses reached out, took hold of the snake, and turned back into a staff in his hand. This said the Lord, this is that they may believe that the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. Moses put his hand in his cloak, and when he took it out, it was leprous like snow. Now put it back in your cloak, he said. So Moses put it back in his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. And then Moses said, if they did not believe you or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, they may believe the second. They don't believe these two. Listen, take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you take from the river will become blood on the ground. God said, they may not believe you, but I'm going to show, demonstrate my power through you. We talked in the high school class, I think, uh, a few weeks ago, we were talking about miracles. And I said, you know, what is the purpose of miracles? First of all, I asked, what is the first miracle performed by an individual in the Bible? Not just what's the first miracle, because obviously creation's a miracle, right? Uh, you know, the flood is a miracle, you know. But what is the first miracle performed by an individual in the Bible? Now, my mind immediately went here. 
I'm thinking when Moses gets before Pharaoh and he begins to do the miracles and the, and the uh, plagues and all of that. But, got to thinking, maybe it was Joseph interpreting the dreams of Pharaoh and the cupbearer and the, and, and the baker. Well, that may be it. But anyway, we're talking about, forget that, that was free. We're talking about what was the purpose? The purpose of miracles is to demonstrate authority. That's the purpose of miracles. That's the reason Elijah and Elisha did miracles. So that they could say, I am speaking for God. Look what I can do. That's the reason Jesus did miracles when he was on earth. So that he could prove to be the son of God. It wasn't to wow people. It was to say, look, I can do this. Therefore, listen to me. That's why in the early church, the apostles and those whom they laid their hands on could do those miracles before we had the written word of God, before we had a solidified, you know, comprehensive Bible. How do we know that what you're saying is true? Well, one of the ways is do miracles. God says, yeah, they may, they may doubt your story. This is a pretty fantastic story. They may doubt it. But when you do these miracles... They're going to have to pay attention. They're going to see that you speak with the authority of God because of these miracles. I think God used ordinary, everyday things. He used the, the, the staff in Moses' hand. He used a little boy's lunch to feed over 5,000 people. He used a slingshot and a one rock to take down the giant. Even though David put five with, took five with him. A widow's might, a cup of water, a borrowed tomb. So then David, uh, David, not Paul, David, Abraham, Moses. So then Moses basically says, I am not gifted. I, I, I'm not a very talented person. And so beginning in verse 10, he says, Moses, or Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I have never been eloquent. Neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. I sense a little false modesty in Moses. Now Moses was raised an educated man. He was raised in the household of Pharaoh. He was raised to be educated. Now you can be educated and still not speak very well. You know I understand that. But Moses kind of shot himself in the foot. Just the way he phrased that to me. Lord, I am not an eloquent man. Neither from the time before you came to speak to me or the time now. And I'm thinking, that's pretty eloquent, isn't it? That's pretty eloquent. And sometimes we can use false modesty. Ah, well, that's not my talent. That's not my thing. That's, I'm not really very good at that. Because it's something that we don't necessarily want to do. Which is the case here with Moses. But God, I remember, I remember Norman. I remember Norman would talk about false modesty in people. And he would say, if, uh, 
he would say, you know, somebody would say, you know, I just don't have any talents. I'm not very good at anything. He said, you know, they'll do that. But if I were to ever come up with them and say, you know, I've noticed that you don't have a single talent. You can't do anything well. You'd be totally offended at that. Anyway, that's what Norman used to say. I think that's kind of what's going here with Moses. Moses trying to do anything. And God says, look at what God says uh, in verse 11. The Lord said to him, who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go and I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. Again, God is saying, I'm going to be with you. I'll put the words in your mouth. I'll help you. I'll carry you along. It kind of reminds me a little bit in the book of Job. As Job is going back and forth with God and kind of saying, you know, I don't, uh, I'm I'm not understanding this. And God kind of lets him argue and argue and argue and, and present a case until God has had enough. And God says, Job, who created the world? Who hung the moon and the stars? Who did all of this? Who are you to be questioning me? Is essentially what God says. And essentially that's what God is saying to Moses. Who decides whether someone can speak or not? Or whether they're deaf or mute? Is it not me? And I will be with you. So then we get down to the real excuse Moses has. And that is... Please get somebody else to do it. In verse 13 it says, But Moses said, O Lord, please send someone else to do it. Could God have picked someone else? He could have. But he didn't. Now God has been pretty patient up to this point, right? Pretty patient. Those of you who are parents... If this were a conversation you were having with your child and you told them to do something and they had come to one, two, three, four different excuses not to do it. I don't know about you. My patience would have ran out after number one. God let Moses go through one. God let him go through two. God let him go through three. God let him go through four. When he gets to five, look at what it says. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. You think the fire in the bush got a little hotter? Maybe the flames got a little higher? Well, I don't know. What about your brother Levi? Aaron, the Levite. I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you and his heart will be glad when he sees you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you to speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you and it will be as if he, if he were your, were your mouth and as if God, you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so you can perform the miraculous sign. So eventually God says, okay, all right, I'll give you what you want. Sort of. I'll meet you halfway. Is kind of what God seems to be saying. You're still going to go. You're still going to be the face. You're, you're still going to be the dude. 
But Aaron is going to help you. Aaron is going to speak for you. Now, Norman also used to say something else. And that is that God always gives us either what we ask for or something better. In this case, I think, God gave Moses what he asked for. But I'm not sure it was the better. Because Aaron is going to become a thorn in Moses' side. Aaron is going to be the one who is going to fashion the golden calf. While Moses is up on the mountain. Aaron and his sister Miriam are going to be the two who are going to question Moses' authority. It is Moses' two sons, Nadab and Abihu, who are going to offer the strange sacrifice and be burned up. So God gave him what he wanted, but I kind of think he'd have been better off by himself because of the problems that Aaron ended up causing. As I think about, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about Jonah. We all know Jonah, right? God tells Jonah, go preach to the Ninevites. We have no record of Jonah arguing with God like Moses. I think maybe because Jonah knew he wasn't going to win that argument. He knew this story of God and Moses. He didn't want to do what God wanted him to do any more than Moses wanted to do what God wanted him to do. And so instead of trying to argue with God, Jonah just ran away from God and said, I'll just get as far away from God as I can. God wants to use each and every one of us. I believe God has a ministry. I believe God has a plan. I believe God has a place for each and every. It may be far from what we ever expected. I told you last week, those of you that were here last week, about the man who asked me to help teach junior high and came to one class and then left. And I was on my own at 19 years old teaching the junior high class. Well, at that same congregation, there was a the the associate minister there. Every, some, I've told this story before, but every time he would find me, he would say, when are you going to quit reading meters and do what God has called you to do? It got to the point that if I saw him coming down the hallway, I would jump in the nearest door, even if it was the women's restroom. Because I did not want to hear it anymore. I did not want him pestering me. I was not called into ministry. God had not called me to do that. God had not called me to, to, you know, I was perfectly comfortable doing what I was doing and I felt like I was doing what God wanted me to do. And maybe I was to a point. But eventually, I think, I realized maybe he's right. Maybe God is calling me. To do something different. Maybe God is calling me. To go into full time ministry. And it may not be your call. It may not be what God is calling you to do. But he's calling you to do something. 
He's calling all of us to do something. And we have to make sure that we don't find every excuse in the world not to do it. And just let him take control and lead us. If you're here this evening, we can help or encourage you. We invite you to come now as we stand and as we sing. We hope by listening to this lesson, you have found a better understanding of the Bible. And through that better understanding, find a closer relationship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ, our living Savior. If you have any questions or desire more information, please feel free to contact us here at the Dangerfield, Texas Church of Christ. You can find us at dfield.org. That's D-F-I-E-L-D-C-O-C dot O-R-G. Or you can email at dfieldcoc779 at aol.com. Or you can call us at 903-645-2896. If you are local to the Dangerfield area, we would love an opportunity to meet you and encourage you in person at 818 West W.M. Watson Boulevard, Dangerfield, Texas. 75638. Our meeting times are Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m. for Bible class and 10.30 a.m. for worship service, Sunday evening at 6 p.m. for worship service, and Wednesday evening at 6.30 p.m. for our midweek Bible class. Grace and peace be with you always.